If I am surrounded with people who think like I do, who speak like I do, it means that I'm surrounded by my own echo and I'm not going to learn anything from echoes. Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. I'm Will Rycroft and in the final episode of season five, we're going to be looking at why the last few years have been an age of division and asking what hope there is for the future. Luckily, the author we're speaking to is Booker Prize nominee Elif Shafak, who is not only an award-winning novelist with a PhD in political science and founding member of the European Council on Foreign Relations, but as an advocate for women's rights, LGBT rights and freedom of speech, has frequently brought audiences to their feet with her inspiring public speaking. You can remain comfortably seated wherever you're listening today, but it really is a welcome tonic. Elif, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Waterstones podcast, first of thank all. Thank you so much for having me. Um, your book, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division, it's it's a slim book, but of course, because you have written it, it contains multitudes. There are so many things we could talk about today. And I, what I wanted to start off with is, of course, everybody has been through a very strange time in 2020 with everything that has been going on. And I think actually, even for the few years before that, it's been a time of huge turmoil, some certainties being questioned. And I think a lot of people questioning even the basic certainties about themselves and their identity. And I wanted to start with you, actually, with your identity, because you do share some very personal details in this book. And I was fascinated to hear sort of near the beginning about how you were born in France, raised in Turkey. You spent time in Spain and the United States. And now, of course, you live in the UK. And you talk about how, of course, this has played a part in your identity. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how not necessarily being from, and I'm putting that in very big speech marks, mm. from a particular place plays with your sense of who you are and how that's changed over the years. I appreciate the question, and I do think about this a lot. I believe the places where I've lived, the cultures I have met along the way, they've all left an impact on me and on my writing. But the thing I want to emphasize is you don't need to be a traveler in order to have multiple belongings. I think as human beings, we all have multiple belongings and we're all so complex, multi-layered. You know, you might, maybe you were born in the same town and you got married in the same town, you raised your family in the same town, you still have multiple belongings. We have our ancestors, sometimes our sports, arts, cultural attachments. You know, as you dig into the complexity of any human being, you come across so many layers upon layers. And my problem with populism, populist nationalism especially, is that it disregards that multiplicity completely and acts as if we are singular identities and we all need to stick to our tribes. Throughout my life, I've never felt that way. As you pointed out, I was born in France the first house that I was brought into was, was very different. It was full of immigrants, liberal students. After a while, my parents' marriage um, collapsed and my father stayed in France and my mother brought me to Turkey because for her it was motherland. To me, Turkey was a new country altogether. And from then on, I was raised by two women, my mother and my grandmother. I believe that left an impact on me as well because I did not grow up in a typical Turkish family, if I may put it this way. And I also grew up observing the sisterhood, the solidarity between these two women. So all of these things affect us, shape us. 
that's why when people ask me where are you from i really struggle i don't want to say a single place a single land i want to be able to answer with a multiplicity it's really interesting what you say there as well because as you say in the book, that people say, well, it's all very well for you who's had a, a privileged life of being able to travel from country to country. But for many people, that's not the case. And as you say, they, they may well have been in the same town for their entire life. But that doesn't have to get into the way of them having a sort of a, a complicated personality or an identity, which is based on all sorts of things. And I suppose in many ways, you talk about how storytelling and books can play a huge part in helping people to shape and define their own identity based on that sort of input. Is that right? Indeed. And actually, I think we are aware that we have multiple voices inside us. Um, And sometimes we struggle because different voices tell us different things. We have different selves inside us. So we're very much aware of that complexity. But the way we are shaped at school, in the community, um, especially with the narrative that is dominant in our societies we're being told that we need to pick one side of our identities and make that our priority and that is the thing that I'm struggling with Um, so one thing that left an impact on me was particularly studying 1960s 70s african-american women's movement that really opened my eyes because when you read these women's writings Many of them, of course, there were women, they knew how patriarchy worked. There were women of color, they knew how racial inequality worked. Many of them came from LGBTQ background, they knew how homophobia or transphobia worked. And also, they did not come from wealthy communities. Many of them struggled with class inequality and the injustices within the systems. So when they talk about power, they talk about it in a much more complicated way than we tend to do today. Also, when they talk about themselves, someone like Audre Lorde, for instance, she says, look at me, I'm a mother, I'm a poet, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, and I'm many more things you might not be able to notice at first glance. That is the emphasis that I do not want to lose. We all contain multitudes, like Walt Whitman said. A lot of people will be listening to this podcast because they will have come across a link on social media. And social media is a place where a lot of us live nowadays and where you will see lots of, I was going to say discussion, but it's often not discussion. It's often sort of argument and mudslinging about some of the things that you've mentioned there about racial inequality, about sexism, about sexuality. And you talk about how the Social media often has this sort of polarised debate. We've become very, very bad listeners on social media. And as you say, even worse learners. And you talk about Eric Fromm and his his idea of collective narcissism, which I found absolutely fascinating, because, of course, this comes from the idea that the individual who has suffered from insecurity um, uh, or vulnerability in the past then finds a sort of renewed sense of self by attaching themselves to a, to a group of people. Could you tell us a little bit more about that sort of idea of collective narcissism and why social media is so awful at sort of amplifying that? Yes, I find it very helpful, to, to be honest, to revisit the writings of scholars, thinkers, philosophers who have especially experienced the rise of populism, nationalism, jingoism uh, at the beginning of 20th century and onwards, their warnings are very relevant today. I'm not saying what we're experiencing is, is exactly the same, but there are similarities that we do need to take into account. And one of the things that Eric Fromm used to write about extensively was collective narcissism and how dangerous that can be. When we think about narcissism, we usually tend to think of it as a personal trait, 
as an individual thing, but it can be a group thing as well. And especially in an age when we, each and every one of us, understandably feels insecure, uncertain, worried, anxious. I, I'm no stranger to any of these feelings. But the danger is when we feel this way, we also long for simplicity. And then comes the populist demagogue and tells us, you know what, don't worry, I'm going to th make things uh, easy for you. I'm going to make everything mm. simple. Just follow me. That is that is a dangerous crossroads. And the second thing that's happening, especially in social media, is we have been tr divided into angry tribes. And that is not helping anyone. If I am surrounded with people who think like I do, who speak like I do, who dress up like I do, it means that I'm surrounded by my own echo or, or, or mirror image. And that is a very narcissistic existence, in fact. And I'm not going to learn anything from echoes. Echoes are not going to challenge us. An echo is only a repetition of my own voice. Or maybe I am the echo of someone else's voice, or just a repetition. So I'm a big believer in cosmopolitan encounters. I'm a big believer in the beauty of diversity. I'm not saying it's easy, but losing diversity is, is incredibly harmful. And I come from a country that has never, ever appreciated its cultural, ethnic diversity. And I think by losing that, we have lost a lot in Turkey. So democracy learns from diversity. As human beings, we learn from each other. When we close all those doors, what happens today is clashing certainties. You know, we're just looking for absolute certainties. And that kind of certainty is something that I find very scary and very totalitarian in its nature. Absolutely. And as you say, it sort of it, it doesn't allow for anybody to learn anything from the other side if you've just got two people who are essentially saying this is how it is and this is how it will be. Um, you, you mentioned there about that sort of that, that feeling of, of hopelessness. And in fact, there's a, a section in the book where you talk about how it's OK to feel that way. And in fact, I wondered whether you wouldn't mind reading it because it's it's the kind of paragraph or sort of a page or so that I found incredibly helpful in the midst of lockdown when it was at its hardest and I was thinking what is going on and, and how is life going to continue would you mind reading that for us now Elif? Yeah, thank you in a world that is ever shifting and unpredictable I've come to believe it is totally fine not to feel fine it is perfectly okay not to be okay if truth be told if from time to time you do not catch yourself overwhelmed with worry and indecision, demoralized and exhausted, or even incandescent. Maybe you're not really following what's going on here, there, and everywhere. We have legitimate reasons to be despondent. When nothing seems solid or stable anymore, it is vital that we acknowledge the diverse and protean nature of our emotions. It follows that we should stop judging and shaming ourselves for not being the always happy and fulfilled citizens to which we are told we must aspire. But acknowledging the dark side of emotions is only where we begin. It cannot be where we end up. Now that's fantastic. As you say, it cannot be where we end up. And so there's this question of what do we then do? Um, and I was really intrigued by the story of your own family where you spoke, you mentioned your, your mother and your grandmother earlier on. And your mother, who after her marriage um, collapsed, who then returned to education. And it was a question of your grandmother helping her to do that. 
And the conversation they had after that, where her, your mother was thanking your grandmother for making that sacrifice. And of course, your grandmother thought it was completely natural to do that because it was all about each generation improving the future for their own children. And what you said has happened recently is that the idea that tomorrow will be better than yesterday is actually not the case anymore, that people don't necessarily see a better future if they're worried about, for example, their ability to have a, a safe home to live in or even a planet that will survive. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? Is that where that sort of that anxiety that people are dealing with at the moment, is that partly where it comes from because we've lost the certainty of tomorrow being better than yesterday? Yes, and I think this is a big, big part of our anxiety because imagine, let's imagine the generations before, our grandparents, the generation before that, these people have gone through enormous hardships. They have experienced huge economic inequalities for sure, but also war, bloodshed. Um, Uncertainty was always on the horizon for them. But they have gone through all of that, thinking and believing that tomorrow was going to be better. When I look at my own family's story, my grandmother, she was... She was not very well educated because she was not allowed to have a good education being a girl. Hmm. And she always believed in girls' education and she was a big supporter of that. She was a very wise woman. So her thought was, I have to do better for my own daughter. And if she does better for her own daughter or for her own son's children, if every generation works harder for the next generation, then this world will improve, will get better. And that's what she did in her, in her own personal life. That's what also my mother did. But when it comes to our generation, or, or our times, I should say, what we see is that faith in, 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 in tomorrow being better than yesterday is broken now. Who can say mm. that if we give the younger generation a good university education, they're definitely going to find it easier in the job market when there's so many uncertainties and inequalities in the job market. So one of the things that I wanted to emphasize in the book is was the younger generations, particularly Generation Z, they have become very worried themselves, understandably. And they have they've been suffering a lot from the consequences of the of the pandemic, the inequalities too. And we need to talk about that. We need to talk about mental well-being, mental health. None of this is secondary or a side issue anymore. And in my opinion, in general, we need to talk about inequalities of all kinds that has to be at the center and front of all of our discussions and efforts from now on. Inequality is is one of the things that, that a lot of people will recognize, whatever their situation. Um, and that feeling of of anger that can often come with that Uh, you talk about anger in the book and of course whilst it can be a sort of catalyzing um, emotion in in order to sort of get action happening it can also as you point out be a, a paralyzing one because anger takes you so far but it can actually frustrate the attempts to actually make a difference. It's a tricky thing, isn't it, anger, in terms of motivating people? Anger is a tricky thing because on the one hand, it is it is high energy. And it also means, it also shows that you care. And I respect that. If we are angry, it means that we're following what's happening in the world. And it hurts mm. us, someone else's pain. That's good. What is not good is numbness, you know, when we're indifferent, numb, desensitized, when we stop caring about each other's pain or each other's stories. However, the problem with anger is in the long run, 
if it keeps going on and on and on, it becomes repetitive, it becomes toxic and destructive. There's also the danger that anger can lead to either arrogance, because it gives me the impression that I know better, or it can lead to apathy in the long run, because I'm so angry, I know nothing is going to change, you know? Um, so we need to be very careful with anger. And I think we need to understand that while it's okay to be angry and it's understandable, we need to do something better with our anger and channel it into a much more positive and constructive force. Overall, I think, especially in the age we're living in, we have to deal with lots of negative emotions, particularly anxiety. It's almost like an existential angst. Then there's fear, resentment, bitterness. There is anger. All of these negative emotions should be acknowledged rather than trying to sweep them under the carpet, pretend they do not exist. We need to acknowledge their existence and presence in our lives, but then try to turn them into something much more positive, progressive together. At the very end of the book, you, you talk about three things, uh, information, knowledge and wisdom, three very different things, in fact. We all know about the sort of the bombardment of, of information that we're assailed with every day when we turn on our TVs or when we look at social media and things like that. And we know how unhelpful that information can be when it's sometimes contradictory. Um, and there is a real difference between information and knowledge and then again between knowledge and wisdom. And you make a crucial point about those two things, which is that, that you, re you need books, you need to read in order to achieve real knowledge. And then, of course, in order to turn that into wisdom, you need to sort of ally that to emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that you feel that in order to do that, what you therefore need is storytelling, which is a very different kind of reading as well. Could you tell us a little bit about how we can move from knowledge towards wisdom? Because it seems to me that that's crucial in terms of us actually making any progress with any of the things that we've been talking about. I think we've put so much emphasis on information for so long. We called our age the information age. And, and particularly at the end of 1990s and early 2000s, there was this extreme optimism that thanks to information technology, democracy was going to spread everywhere, that if you gave people the right amount of information, they would make the right choices. Now, none of those predictions were actualized. And in fact, we live in an age in which we are bombarded with information, but also misinformation every day, every hour. And the truth is we can't process it. We just skim through. Up and down, we look on our you know, screens but we don't really, it doesn't really register. It doesn't really stay with us. And I think we need to stop that. We need less information, but more knowledge and hopefully much, much more wisdom in our lives. For knowledge, we need to s slow down a little bit. And for that, we need books. We need in-depth analysis, investigative journalism. But especially, we need to retreat into the world of books and reading and literature, both fiction and non-fiction, actually. But as I said, for wisdom, I think we need to bring the mind and the heart together because wisdom requires empathy. It requires this cognitive flexibility that helps us to put ourselves in the shoes of another person. And I think, to be honest, politicians especially need that so much. When they make decisions that affect everyone, you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of another person. So empathy is so crucial. I don't know a single person in this life who doesn't need empathy. 
sometimes when people say, you know, I don't, you know what, I don't read fiction. I don't have time for that. They say, I read mm. politics. I read history. I read economy, philosophy, important stuff, because I want to understand the world. And that really breaks my heart because why do we divide knowledge into these artificial categories when they're all mm. connected? Of course, let's read philosophy, history, economy, and also fiction because everything that is in life is also inside fiction. And as I said, whether we are engineers, designers, bakers, students, teachers, I don't know a single person who doesn't need emotional intelligence in their own life and, and, or empathy. So fiction gives us an additional understanding and maybe helps us to think in a much more nuanced way. And we should never lose sight of that. That is why I believe we need less information from now on, more knowledge, and hopefully much more wisdom. With all of that sort of in place, uh, and I suppose with everything that's happened in 2020, um, we're, we're, we've, we've been through this time where it's almost like a, the pause button has been pressed. And there's this real question about what happens afterwards and whether we've all been given a, a wake-up call and now is an opportunity to really do something about some of these inequalities and injustices that we've been talking about. And I suppose at the end of all of that, the question is, are you hopeful that that will actually happen? Uh, you talk, we, it feels like we're on this sort of threshold. And in fact, you mention a, a phrase in the book, which is to, to beware of thresholds, mm. um, because that, that moment of stepping from one place into another is where things can go wrong. Mm. But do you feel hopeful for the future? Yes, it's interesting. There's a passage in Antonio Gramsci's writings when he talks about the old order being no more, but the new not being born yet. So mm. in that uh, interval, in that threshold moment, he says lots of morbid symptoms can appear because of so much uncertainty. And again, I think that's an important warning for our times. On the one hand, this is a very important crossroads because we can fix things. We can renew, reform, and restructure everything. Sometimes when people say, with all the good intentions, when will we go back to how things were before the pandemic? When, when are we going to go back to the normal? I really want mm. to question that. And I don't want to go back to the way things were before the pandemic because that was not normal. It was full of inequalities. And, and, and in order to understand that, we need to pay more attention not to the center, but to the margins, to the periphery. So do we want to go back to that or do we want to restructure and, and hopefully create a much fairer, better egalitarian society for, for, for ourselves, but especially for the next generations? These are major questions. That's why I think what we're experiencing is also a crisis of meanings. We thought we knew the meanings of central concepts, like what is democracy, what kind of a life we want. And what the pandemic has done is to push us into rethinking all those central concepts that we have taken for granted. In that sense, it is a, it is a good moment. But what I'm worried about is that with increasing inequalities, we might also see, and with increasing uncertainty, we might also see an increase in more populism, more tribalism, you know, that almost knee-jerk reaction that people sometimes have in terms of going back to safe zones, this illusion that if I'm surrounded by sameness, I will be safer, which is an illusion. Mm. 
Um, that that is something that worries me. So in a nutshell, all I can say is our challenges are global and massive and complex. We need to understand that the age we're living in is complex, whether it's the possibility of another pandemic, climate emergency, the fact that our planet is burning, whether it's cyber terrorism or financial uh, deregulation. It shows us that we're all interconnected as human beings. And we cannot solve these global challenges with the forces of nationalism or tribalism. And if your ability to, to put things in a nutshell is has been on display in this conversation and, of course, in your book, too. And I don't know quite how you do it. It's somehow sort of magical to, to have these huge concepts that are reduced down. And, of course, your, your fiction. You talk about how storytelling can help us with empathy in particular. And your most recent novel, the book I shortlisted, 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world, is a perfect example of that. Um, want to thank you so much for that. And massive thanks as well for your time today to talk about it. It really, really is appreciated. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Huge thanks to Alif Shafak, whose book How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division is out now, and whose book a shortlisted novel 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world is currently our fiction book of the month. Season six of the podcast will be here before you know it, and we'll be beginning with the biggest question of them all. What is life? As I speak with Nobel Prize winning geneticist Sir Paul Nurse. See you then.